It's time to sit back, relax, and listen to Conversations with Joan. Conversations with Joan will inspire, motivate, and empower you. Live your best life now. Listen, learn, think, and decide. And now, here's your host, Joan Herman. Welcome to Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life's Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in. Conversations with Joan focuses on topics that are important to your life, from health and wellness to professional development to personal well-being. Change makers join me to share their insights, tips, and strategies so you can thrive and live your best life now. Thank you for taking time for yourself, and thank you for letting us be a part of your life. Now, let's start talking. The increase in the number of people starting their own businesses in the United States has surged. Joining us today to talk about how to get a running start with a micro business is Elaine Pofelt, a small business specialist who is the author of The Million Dollar One Person Business. In her new book, Tiny Business, Big Money, Elaine provides a guide to making it big while keeping things small. Elaine is an independent journalist who specializes in small business and entrepreneurship. Her work has appeared on CNBC and in Fortune, Money, Forbes, and many other publications. As a senior editor at Fortune Small Business, Elaine was twice nominated for the National Magazine Award for her features. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, Joan. It's great to be here. It's always great to reconnect with you. You know, I agree because this is such an important topic, particularly today, because as I said, there has been a surge in people starting their own businesses. What do you think, Elaine, has led to this increase? I think it's exhaustion from the pandemic. Honestly, I think a lot of people were in work situations that weren't ideal for them. They weren't healthy for them. They maybe were working for a a boss who uh, didn't appreciate them, a company that was not compensating them appropriately for the cost of living and for what they were contributing. And it's almost like when you're at the gym and you are uh, doing push-ups, say, and your arms get to that point where you can't do another push-up. I think the pandemic was like that. People had to do so much extra work and so much extra emotional coping, they just couldn't cope with any um, any more discomfort at work. And they rethought their lives and they started experimenting with starting a small business, something that is hard to do when you have to commute. But when people aren't commuting, they're at home and they've gotten back an hour or two a day, they can very uh, privately try starting a business, see if they like it. And a lot of people are discovering that they're really good at it and they had no idea that they were actually good at it. So then they can kind of take the ball and run with it and say bye-bye. And, you know, like you're saying, Elaine, I think it gave us an opportunity to prioritize what's important in life. And and maybe we said to ourselves, well, if I'm going to work 70 hours a week, I don't want to have to deal with someone governing my life and telling me what I need to do. I'm going to do it for myself. Exactly. I remember when I first became uh, self-employed, that was like in 2007, and I had three children then uh, ages four and under. And I remember being able to go to a doctor's appointment without telling someone. And it was the first time I felt like an adult able to govern my own life because normally I would have had to ask my boss if I could take a few hours off to take care of my children, which is a responsibility that I have as a parent um, and have to justify it. And I thought, wow, this is so liberating. I will never go back. And I never did go back, honestly. Um, 
because once you have a taste of that freedom and you have the confidence that you can earn a living on your own terms, why would you go back to that? Because you can still work with the exact same people as a freelancer in many industries or as a consultant and still do the same high-level work without a lot of the hassle. Yeah, I agree. I don't think I could ever sit in an office from nine to five again, and just be that constricted after having my own business for 11 years. And you know, Aline, we hear so much about people quitting their jobs at record rates, and that there are all of these open jobs that employers can't fill. Do you think the reason that that's happening is because so many have started their own businesses? I think it's a combination of factors. One is there are folks who are extremely nervous about COVID. I think people are on a spectrum about that. And the people that are very nervous about it, if they if they are able to quit, maybe are saying, let me quit and start a business. I don't think it's because they started a business that they're quitting. I think it's because the stress of being in the workplace for them personally is too much. Maybe they have a health condition, you know, that makes them much more vulnerable to COVID than than um, someone else might be. And they want freedom to control their own health choices and their lifestyle choices. I think that's a very big factor. I think also there are a lot of inequities in the workplace um, for women and people of color, and they've had to live with it basically their whole careers. And they're saying now, okay, I have to deal with that. I'm underpaid. I don't have the same access to promotions. I have to maybe commute in on a um, on a subway where I'm a little nervous about catching COVID. And then I have to go into an office where maybe I can catch it. And the cost is just not worth it. And so they're more willing to take a risk because the risk of actually going into the office seems greater. And I think this is the first time we've ever had something like this where weighing the risks and benefits of not having a job actually seems less risky to people who are more risk averse in general. And I think that's very interesting because a lot of them are finding they actually have the capabilities to run a good little business and support themselves. And they probably never had to do those jobs for safety and security. They just didn't build the confidence in themselves to do it because most of us didn't go to schools that encourage anyone to become an entrepreneur. It's not really um, an academic discipline that's taught in, in schools up, you know, in the K through 12 world. It, and honestly, when I first um, started working in entrepreneurship journalism, I remember I ran the best business schools for entrepreneurs at Success Magazine. And a lot of the universities did not want to own that they were teaching entrepreneurship. It was not seen as uh, as legitimate a discipline as studying corporate business. And gradually it became widely adopted and the top business schools embraced it. But I remember when I ran that ranking, it was very hard to get participation, even when I knew that they had a program. <laughs> and, and, and now they're all proud of it and happy to have it as an interdisciplinary area. But as a result, a lot of people have really not learned these skills and they have to kind of learn it as they go along. And not everybody has the confidence that they can do it or the connections where they can ask other business owners and some people grow up in families like when my dad was a civil servant and there wasn't a lot of entrepreneurship in our family. And interestingly, my brother and I are both self-employed, but you have to know where to get the information to um, actually do it. 
because it's something where you, you have to tap into the collective knowledge. So I think what's happened now is just, it, it was kind of sink or swim for a lot of people that, and they just did it and they found they, they could really excel at it. I agree with you because if my father were alive now, when I started my own business, I think he probably wouldn't have understood it or he would have been extremely nervous for me because that wasn't his frame of reference. He came from being a company person. And so you know, like you were saying, they may not have seen the opportunities that we have, but hopefully we'll be passing this on to our children and our grandchildren. And so in your new book, you write about a micro business. How is a micro business defined? What does that mean? There, there are a lot of different ways experts define it, but basically these are, I, I define them in the book as up to 20 employees. In the first book, I looked at non-employer businesses. These are businesses that have no payroll. They might have a team, you know, of like uh, a bookkeeper and an accountant that help the entrepreneur, but basically they have no employees and they're, they're solopreneur businesses or maybe a couple. Um, that would be a non-employer business too or two business partners um, where they have no employees. But once you go to payroll, that's what I'm writing about in this book or people that have such a formalized extended team of contractors that they're a quasi-employer business. So uh, they might say they have a team in the Philippines, which is very common for U.S. businesses, they don't technically have to make the, the workers employees. And a lot of times they don't because it's just easier in terms of the setup, um, but they function as employees. That's what I'm looking at. And there is a big change in mindset that is required when you're managing a team because you have to convey the purpose of the business, how you want things done, how you want customers to be served and that sort of thing. And that's a challenge for a lot of people who have been solopreneurs. I just heard it over and over again. Actually, as I, I did an updated edition of the Million Dollar One Person Business about a year ago at this point. And when I spoke to people, some of them had had grown the business a little bit. And they were talking to me about that very factor, how it's a whole different skill set when it's not just you or not just you. And, you know, once a year you talk to your accountant. And they had to raise their game as, as leaders because like it or not, even if they wanted to be solos, if they're relying on other people's help, there's a big communication uh, requirement for that. And we can all get better at that. And so that's what I looked at is, you know, how are they organizing these teams? They like to travel light. They don't want to be a formal corporation. And what I found was they're using very interesting methods. Some people have no meetings. They manage the whole team on Slack or by, you know, texting and email and all kinds of uh, different methods than you would be taught in business school. Elaine, if someone has a successful one-person business, how does that person know it's time to hire employees? And is there a benefit to doing so rather than working with consultants? Usually that point comes when you start noticing slippage in the business. You're just not able to make deadlines or, you know, you get sick for one day and the whole thing starts falling apart. That's usually a sign that you're maxed out and that you don't have enough um, backup in place in the event something goes wrong. Because sometimes things do go wrong. Uh, um, and employees are usually best when you need them there consistently. Sometimes employees might have slack periods where, you know, maybe the business isn't coming in. That happened with a lot of businesses during the pandemic. It would have to be worth it to keep them on payroll consistently anyway, despite any slack period. That's one sign that it's still worth it, even if you have to pay them some weeks when it's slow. Um, because it is a big cost. Usually it's the biggest cost 
in any business next year, maybe real estate, depending on what part of the country the business is in. Um, and and so you, it, you, you also have to make payroll, right? That's a legal requirement. You can't just not pay people because you're short on cash. So you have to do a financial analysis too and one and look at whether you have the cash flow to support paying each employee consistently every month or every week, depending on how you structure it. I have met so many people, Elaine, who are very good at what they do. They really are leaders in their particular field, and yet they can't get their business to a certain higher income. And and they're baffled by it. Like they don't know what they're doing wrong. So what have some of the people you've interviewed told you about what they attribute their successes to? Like, how does one person make that high income while somebody equally as good never generates it? I think one of the things that holds people back is staying in the weeds too much and not being willing to trust either automation, outsource services, or other people. And in, in the book, I look at this continuum that people can go down. Usually the first best step, if you feel like you're not maxing out your revenue, is to take time to look at how you're spending your time during the week. I, I work with a business coach, and he had me do this. And you literally create an Excel or a Google Sheet and put down what you do every hour of the day and take a look at where are you spending time on tasks that could be done with technology if you took the time to set it up um, and outsource service or by somebody else. Usually technology is the least expensive, lowest risk um, way to offload things because if you don't like an app, you're not having to fire the app, right? You just stop paying for it and discontinue it. Um, but the, the others take a little more um, thoughtfulness because you, if you're bringing on a contractor and outsource service, you'll have to vet them and make sure that they're up to your standard, um, that you're comfortable with what their processes are. Sometimes their processes can be so elaborate that it's not worth it to work with them. Um, and then when you get to that point where you really need a contractor constantly or an outsource service constantly, that might be the point at which you consider bringing someone in-house. I would say the first step is if you're not maximizing revenue, they almost all use automation. I did a survey and where I surveyed the entrepreneurs in the book about their best practices and all of them, 100% of the businesses I surveyed, it was um, 49 businesses, use contractors, 90% use automation. Um, and, and, and that tells you a lot, you know, they're not doing all the work of the business themselves, even if they're just, you know, a two person business, um, they're, they're relying on somebody other than themselves or something other than themselves. And in, in um, the chapter, set yourself up for success. I look at this whole continuum. Raj Srivastava is a tech entrepreneur who, who creates, um, reports for people that do a certain kind of investing and his business is completely automated. So that's one end of the spectrum. And then I go through people that have um, a combo of automation and contractors or contractors plus employees, et cetera. So you can see what it looks like in, in different permutations and figure out which one is right for you. But it's basically dip a toe in the water and then see, okay, did this free up my time so that I can now go out and win new business or I can think more about strategy and R&D and the things that really help me get to the next level in the business. 
I mean, sometimes there are other factors at play. It might be that you're underpricing your services or your product and you, you need to increase your prices. Um, and that alone will propel you to the next level. I've seen that happen a number of times. And um, that's something to really look at objectively. That's where a business coach or a peer coach or somebody at SCORE or the SBA can help you to um, analyze your practices. Because a lot of times when you start a business, you feel lucky to have any customers at all. I think back to my first year in business, even though I hired freelancers and I knew what the going rate was, somehow I felt like even though I was an experienced journalist, I like. I was a new freelancer and I had to start all over again. I got out of that after about a year, but (laughs) I see that happen a lot. You just feel like it's different when you're in business for yourself. And after taking on some very unprofitable projects, I I started changing my rates and making sure that I could run a sustainable business because you're honestly not doing anyone any favors if you underprice your product or service because you will go out of business and then you won't be there to help anybody and your customers won't even want you to undercharge. They, they like fairness. A good customer will like you to be charging what your product or service is worth. That's another thing that I learned. Um, and so that that's another low-hanging fruit for a lot of new and even experienced entrepreneurs. Sometimes right now, for instance, costs have gone up a lot because of the supply chain crisis. And uh, like if you own a restaurant or if you own a business that uses paper or other things that are trapped on ships out at sea somewhere, (laughs) the prices are high and you may have to raise your prices. And people don't like doing that. They feel a lot of pain asking for more money. But if you gradually um, grandfather in higher prices, maybe keep the same prices uh, in a service business that you had, or you put up a little sign if you have a restaurant that you have to pass along some of the costs, people do understand. They're not going to stop coming to a restaurant because the price of one dish went up by $1, even though we have that fear that you'll go out of business if you do these things, it's usually never realized. Elaine, if someone wants to get started on the journey to business ownership, what are a few of the best tips that you can offer? I would start with what you know, because you're probably an expert in it. If you have a job working for someone else, you might have spotted a little opening in um, the marketplace for something that you needed. I'll give you an example. There were um, two fellows, Jason Martin and Patrick Falvey, who started a business that I wrote about called App Evolve, and they were software developers. And they noticed um, there were not a lot of apps that were compatible with Salesforce at the time, that um, customer relationship management software. And so they, um, they went out on their own and they started developing those types of apps, but then they found there were um, demands for other types of apps and they expanded. And now their business has, they first it was just the two of them. They started it on Upwork and now they're at the stage they had just hired their first employee, an admin. Um, they're in Boise um, and they had gotten an office in Boise and were um, planning to expand and uh, build a team, but they had a team of contractors that they relied on, a, a quite a large team all over the world. Um, so that's an example of just noticing something on your job where there's there's an opportunity to add value, and, and that's what it is about, bringing something that people need or, or want or that, or that gives them pleasure. All of those things are valid reasons to start a business. 
Um, and then if you're doing a service business, a lot of times start with your network. I did a LinkedIn post once. I, I'll have to resurface it because it was just so informative what people posted where I asked um, what would be the one piece of advice you would give someone who lost their job and had to start a business today? And they said, go to your network and tell people you're in business, basically. But that came up over and over again. And um, a lot of the people who did service businesses in this book and my first book, their first customer was their old company, interestingly. In interestingly, they, they didn't burn bridges and they weren't too proud to say, you know what, I put up a shingle, and if you need any help, no matter how small, I'm here for you. Because there's, there's something else that happens. As soon as you have business and you start getting booked, you and I were talking at the beginning of this call before we started about being really busy. It does give you confidence that you can um, you can turn things down that aren't a good fit, that you can charge the right prices if your dance card is full. If you don't have any business, it's harder to have those conversations where you're talking with a new customer and they say, so what other project have you been working on? They don't want a whole roster. They just want to hear about one. If you have none, you won't feel confident. Um, what One thing that you can do if, if you don't have any is to do some volunteer projects and use your professional skills. Don't just do any random volunteer project. Do something where, um, like, for instance, if you're a marketer, maybe there's a nonprofit in your community that needs marketing help. So if you have those conversations, so, you know, what are you working on lately? You could say, I'm doing a, a report on blah, blah, blah for this nonprofit. You don't have to say that it's a volunteer project because you, you never would say that if it wasn't a volunteer project. You just It's just a project you're working on. That gives you some momentum and it shows the client that you are a sought after professional and, and that will help you start picking up speed in the business. The book is Tiny Business, Big Money, Strategies for Creating a High Revenue Micro Business. If you'd like to get more information about Elaine and her work, you can visit ElainePofelt.com. Elaine, thank you so much for joining us. I really look forward to the next time you come back. You are such a wealth of information, and I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you, Joan. I always enjoy connecting with you, too. Thank you for joining us. I hope you found the show informative. At Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life, we believe that knowledge is power. Take what you've learned, apply it, and live your best life now. Remember that the information provided is the opinion of our guest and should never replace the advice of a professional who knows your personal situation. If you'd like more information, visit our website, cyacyl.com. That stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. While on our site, listen to past shows on demand, read the digital magazine, sign up for our mailing list, and be sure to follow the show on social media. Until next time, this is Joan Herman. Thanks for tuning in.